Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. It's a pleasure to have with me today, Maddie Simon, CTO of Checkmarks. Hi, Maddie. Hey. Maddie Simon is founder and CTO at Checkmarks, which achieved unicorn status last year. As the company's founder, he oversees its technology and product strategy, helping customers develop and release more secure software. Maddie has over 15 years of experience in software development, IT security, and source code analysis. Previously, he worked for two years at the Israeli Prime Minister's office as a senior IT security expert and project manager. Additionally, he spent six years with the Israeli Defense Forces, where he was selected as the Star Excellence Program and taught several consecutive sessions for their prestigious application development course. So, Maddie, why don't we get started? Why don't you start by telling us about how you got into security? Thank you. So my story really begins at the age of seven, when I got my first computer for my seventh birthday. It was Amstrad 6128 with basic built-in. And with it, my parents asked for one of our neighbors to teach me how to write code. I got hooked up right immediately, and I'm writing code almost every single day ever since. As I said, at the age of 18, I served at an application security division at the Israeli Defense Forces for eight years, and I have founded Checkmarks right afterwards. That's awesome. You and I have that in similar. I also wrote my first code, first piece of code when I was seven years old. It was actually in C, C++, but I believe yours was in basic, you, you, you mentioned to me earlier. So I'd be curious, what was your first memory or what was the first piece of software or code that you wrote that you were really proud of at that age? I helped one of my neighbors to optimize the whale the way he filled the lottery tickets. In Israel, the lottery tickets, you need to fill six numbers and make sure that you optimize it in such a way that you pay the least amount of money to raise the chances. So I found a way to optimize that and everyone were very proud of me. So I was happy with that. That's fantastic. And and this is when you were seven years old or this was a little later? Uh, around that age, seven, eight year old. Yeah. That's awesome. I wish I could have met you at that age and you know you could have helped me optimize some of the things that I was working on. I was definitely not as advanced as you were back then. I was literally writing Hello World and, you know, copying code from books and just making them run. But that's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about check marks. You know, when you decided to start the company, what were some of the things you were really focused on as you guys got started? And, you know, what were the things that really drove innovation in the company? Um, so it was basically my own personal need. During my service at the army, I was in charge. One of my responsibilities was to find a tool or a product that will help developers to write secure code. So I did some research and I couldn't find anything decent. These were really the, the early days of the industry and anything that I, everything that I saw created a lot of friction in the implementation phase. So I said, well, I have a lot of experience in writing code almost 20 years back then. 
I had eight years of experience in application security, and I was, I guess, naive enough to think that I can compete with the giants in the market back then. So I said, well, let's try to build a software that I would use personally, and let's see how it goes. So that's what drove the early days of Checkmarks. So how much of that was really developer focus versus security expert focused? You know, when you're building tools in the early days, there were lots of tools out there that did code analysis and, and static analysis. And they all seemed to be very heavily focused on security practitioners or security experts to go and review code, not necessarily focused from a developer's perspective. So how much of that focus really drove what you built? And more importantly, what were the things that you did differently? differently than what the other tools were doing at that time? It's an excellent question. So the way there are, I think, three different aspects into that. The first one is the way that you present the results. I chose to present the results in an IDE-like UI, in an interface that the developers are used to. So the same way they debug their code and they step between different lines of code, that's the very same that I chose to present the vulnerabilities one line after the other. The second thing that I chose was to build kind of a query language or a customization capabilities baked into the product, understanding that developers never use products out of the box. They think they know better than anyone else. Very often that's true. And they just want to be able to configure it where um, I felt that security people are really happy with out of the box and someone else will lead the way. And I think the third one, which is probably the most important one, is the way that we scanned the code back then. All the products scanned compile code required all the different dependencies to be together in the same place to have a buildable and compilable environment. And one of my first choices was that we will be able to scan raw source files for all supported languages to scan the text file themselves. This allowed us to create frictionless experience. You just point us to a single source file, a module, entire code base, broken code, compiled code, whatever you have in mind, we're able to scan it. Even if the code does not compile, you missed a semicolon or parenthesis, that's perfectly fine. We're able to compensate over that. And I think this what uh, took us forward at the early days, that developers were able to launch a scan in a matter of minutes, where I was told that with other competing products, it might have taken days until all the dependencies were gathered together. So I think this was the number one differentiator in of our product back then. So first of all, there must be a reason why all the other static analysis tools were requiring the code to be compiled back then, right? And that's probably because of the ability to do certain types of analysis was much easier using data from the compilation phase, like having access to the syntax trees and, and things of that nature. My question for you really is around, well, if you're trying to do the analysis without compiled code, what are the key challenges that came along with being able to do that analysis, but more importantly, being able able to do that analysis accurately? It's an excellent question. Building a compiler is considered one of the hardest tasks in the industry, in software development industry. We had to build the front end of a compiler or of compilers for each and every language that we support. We support 20 languages. We had to build the front end of 20 different uh, compilers. So this was very um, work intensive part uh, on our part. The benefit is that we were able to skip some of the checks that were mandated by the compilers because we felt they do not provide any significant value for the end users of ours. For example, checking if there is a semicolon, that's something that the compiler 
Apollo must do, but to build an abstract syntax tree, you can do it, you can do that without it. So we had to build the front end of compilers, of 20 compilers. We used the ANTLR library, another tool for language recognition, to build the abstract syntax tree and then the document object model and so on. It was challenging, work intensive, uh, but eventually it, it paid off uh, big time. So from that whole journey and, and that experience, if we go back to the early stages when you were deciding what to do and, and tried various different things, are there certain things you would have done differently uh, in your early stages as you were building the whole checkmark solution? No. I mean, eventually we're in a very good place. I cannot tell that there is any specific decision that if I have made it differently, we would be at the, at the same place right now. So I guess overall, kind of the aggregation of all the good and bad decisions that I've made is place us in a good place. Awesome. That's very fair. So let's let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the industry trends. You you know, you talk to a lot of organizations and you're helping a significant amount of organizations not only secure their software but also get their developers to write more secure code from the get-go. I'm curious to understand from you if there are certain security trends that you're you're following and watching closely and and what your experience has been over there. I think we can divide that question into two parts because application security is tightly coupled with the application development industry. So we're riding the application development trends. So the first thing is what are the various application development trends that we see? The art of writing software today is very different than the art it used to be 10, 15 years ago. I've heard uh, someone called it uh, legalizing. The fact that you take pieces and components from various places, web services, uh, third-party, open source, and so on and so forth. And the way that you organize these Lego bricks together and build your software is different than what used to be when you and I started writing our basic or C++ code and we had to write each and every library on our own. So although both are called software development, it's a different set of expertise and it directly translates into to how it affects the application security trends. Instead of looking only at the code, we also need to see how these different bricks are combined together, how they communicate with each other. If you have followed best practices in the integration phase, for example, a trend that comes very strongly lately is the supply chain, supply chain attack and so on. The way that you consume third-party closed source or open source components. You know, when we hire a developer to check marks, we do some kind of background check to see what this person has done before. But when you download a code from GitHub, who does that background check for that arbitrary developer? Probably no one. So this supply chain is a very strong trend right now. And again, it relates to the localizing concept that you take pieces from different sources. API security is also a very strong trend. Uh, I think it started like two, three years ago. And, and back then we saw that it's a very strong trend. That's why we initiated the OWASP top 10 for API security. But it's even stronger right now, the way that different components communicate with each other, the concept of bill of material with API. Customers are coming to us saying, well, we don't know what APIs are exposed or consumed by our services. So providing that bill of material has significant value. So overall, the, the overall concept of legalizing induces various security trends, two of which are supply chain and API security. So, you know, I, I kind of want to break up your answer and dig a little more in, into a few of the sections. So let's start by talking more about open source first. 
So given the heavy usage of open source components and in software and the fact that people are reusing components to build software at a much faster pace and get things done much quicker, do you have any advice for organizations on how to manage the risk from open source software in their software? It's a complex answer. First of all, the, the low-hanging fruit is making sure that the open source software they're using do not contain any known vulnerabilities. That's obvious, and there are many, many tools in the market that do it. They can optimize it to focus on tools that provide actionable results in the sense that you might be using a vulnerable component, but you're not invoking the vulnerable method. So the risk at that specific moment in time is lower. So you might find something that helps you to prioritize the results based on the exploitable path. Let's call it that way. The second aspect is to use a supply chain tool, something that provides you with, uh, let's say, contributor reputation, something that says, well, kind of, as I said, kind of a background check to the individual contributor of a component. And you might say, well, I want to use only open source code that has at least a minimal set of a contributor reputation or something like that. So that's kind of a more advanced approach into that issue. Great. And then what about the challenges with API usage and API security? What are some key things to consider for organizations as they try to develop a strategy on how to manage and how to test APIs from a security perspective? So there are two, two approaches into that. One approach is to install an agent or an agent-like solution in your production environment, monitoring all the traffic or behavior of your application. It might be a sidecar or a proxy or, or a sniffer or agent-like solution. The other option is to use something that is more to the left, shift left, that does it not in production, but either in testing or in the development phase. My own personal belief, and that's where I'm taking check marks, you know, in the last 15 years is to the left, almost as much as possible, not too much, but to the left. And that's why I believe that agent-like solutions are kind of a natural handicap versus developer tools. Developers are writing their APIs. They want to get immediate feedback, whether they have done something right or wrong, instead of waiting it to go into production and, you know, month later getting back feedback that something they have, they have done is wrong. So there are two approaches, the kind of pre-prod or prod, and, and naturally I'm, I'm in favor of the pre-prod approach. So let's talk about that a little bit more then, the whole concept of shift left. It's a term we hear all the time. It's become more of a buzzword that kind of goes along with DevOps and DevSecOps uh, as well. So curious from your perspective, what do you see as far as the future and adoption of DevSecOps and then also the concept of shift left? What type of trends are you seeing uh, in the industry? It's an interesting question because shift left is a super important trend to provide feedback as quickly as possible. But we need to make sure not to take it uh, you know, too much to the left. Uh, for example, I'm personally not a great believer in IDE plugins. I feel that the feedback that they provide is annoying. Developers want to write their code. They want to make sure that the feature, they have built the business logic of their feature. And that's perfectly fine to wait for the security feedback once they check in their code. It might be you know, a couple of hours later, but you don't want someone just sitting next to them and constantly nagging them that they have done something wrong. So, you know, a scale of a couple of hours is good enough. Too much to the left will be annoying, creates friction, and developers do not appreciate that. 
That being said, there are certain concepts of shift left that are more theoretical and, and should be taken seriously. For example, developer education, teaching developers about security vulnerabilities, that is probably as left as possible. There is nothing before educating developers. And obviously, I'm a great proponent of teaching and educating developers. I don't think that eight-hour uh, YouTube videos are the right approach. No one likes it. Um, I think that in context, in time, security education is the right approach. The developer is writing uh, a SQL command. Okay, let's suggest to the developers, well, do you want to take that eight-minute crash course around SQL injection? This might be relevant for you at that moment in time. And then the developers are really willing to learn something new, which is relevant to their current activity. So uh, that's, I also consider it as part of shift left, as left as it gets. So that's kind of my, my take into that. Awesome. That's helpful. So let's talk a little bit more. You know, we kind of talked about some agent-based technology. And one of the things I want to talk about is IAST as well, which is an agent-based solution to discovering vulnerabilities in software. Curious to un understand from you what trends you're seeing in the marketplace. I believe Checkmarks has an IAST solution as well. What are the trends in the marketplace with IAST itself? And how do you see it integrating or working in conjunction with static analysis and dynamic analysis? analysis solutions that are out there today? It's a complex question. I think that IAST provides a lot of value, but the friction in implementing it, in installing it, in maintaining it is probably too much. It might be the best solution, but if it's hard to implement, people will not use it. With SAST, we saw that we got a lot of market traction because we were able to lower the friction of our solution. I asked a somewhat different approach. It creates a lot of friction. And overall, I don't think that the IAST market is something that the developers appreciate very much. I'm not sure it has a very bright future as a market and as an industry. Got it. So is the challenge that you're seeing primarily because getting that agent deployed is too much overhead for organizations to figure out how to do it in an automated fashion? Or are there other challenges with IAST as well that you're seeing today? Yeah, there are several challenges. First of all, there are many stakeholders. Unlike SAS, which you just need a developer to launch a scan, with IS, you need the DevOps team. You need the QA team to make sure, if there is a QA team, to make sure that there is a testing coverage. You need to have the developer to look at the results. So there are so many stakeholders. And during the implementation phase, you need to have everyone in the same room doing something. It naturally slows down the process. And if there's a problem, you still need to get these three people in the same room. There is an organizational challenge into that. There is a technical challenge of making sure that you have a good testing coverage, which is not obvious these days. Also, it goes somewhat against the trend of containerized solution. The, the notion of containers is that these are immutable. You build a container and then you test it, you pre-prod, you prod, and so on and so forth without changing it. And in most cases with the IS, you require to remove the agent before going into production. Now, there are some tricks. You might change a flag between active and not active. So it's kind of cheating because it's not exactly the same piece of software that you're testing and that you're launching into production. I mean, it's the same container, but not the same software. And, you know, cheating is, is not the best idea, I guess. So again, th these are some of the challenges, organizational challenges. Uh, it goes against the trends in the market and, and so on. So again, it all boils down into frictionful solution. 
So in kind of following that trend, I would be also curious to understand, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to integrate static analysis as part of their CICD process and part of the pipeline and do scanning in an automated fashion. Don't you still need all those stakeholders that you mentioned earlier? Maybe not QA, but don't you still need the DevOps engineer and development teams to work together to adopt a static analysis engine into the CICD process? Um, not necessarily. You, you you just need the the developer. You might need the DevOps for for you know the, the concept of static analysis is that you point the platform whatever you use to your uh, Git GitHub account and it just automatically scans every repo that you have and every pull request launches a new scan. It's it's completely hands off solution. You just point it to your your Git account and and that's it. There is nothing that needs to be integrated into your build process or to your pipeline and as as you add new repos to your account, they automatically kind of inherit that functionality of getting scanned. So in that sense, static analysis is completely frictionless. The friction might come at the areas of false positives or the actionability of the results. That's true. We work on that. Um, I guess every other player in the market works on that. It's a challenge, but I think that the industry has drastically matured over the last few years. With the introduction of machine learning, uh, we can improve to prioritize the results to show which of the results are more actionable than others, which results were fixed by the developers and which one were left open, so they're probably less actionable. So I think that the industry has, has matured very significantly. So I do want to talk about static analysis and the false positive rate. We know that in the industry, static analysis tools have maybe gotten a bad reputation for having very large false positive issues that they report. And it's just in the nature of the analysis that is being done, it's expected that there will be false positives. Would love to understand from you what type of advice you have for security leaders on how to deal with false positives, and especially when they're trying to deploy a static analysis across the organization. It is indeed a challenge. And usually, we recommend organizations to start with two, three teams, two, three projects, choosing the friendly teams. And to let them scan their project, configure the queries or the rule set to lower the false positive to an acceptable rate, and then go to the next two, three, five projects. And we see that very drastically, the number of false positive drops. And once you get to the next cycle of projects, uh, it's, it's, there are virtually no false positive at the high risk vulnerabilities. And that's how you introduce that to, to the organizations. How often would you advise someone to maybe write custom rules to help the static analysis engine better understand any custom software that they're writing that's doing maybe things like input validation or output encoding and things of that nature? Do you see frequently customers trying to write custom rules to help the static analysis engine understand their piece of software better than it would do out of the box? Yeah, so there are three, I think, three places where it happens. Uh, at the implementation phase, as I said, when you install checkmarks for the first time and you onboard your first application, so that's usually the place where you configure the queries to lower the false positive. The second place is when you introduce a completely new technology stack in your organization. You, you went from Java to Golang, then you, want, you need to configure the relevant queries. And third, we saw that customers are also writing or leveraging our capabilities to build a different set of queries. 
we have a very large organization that uses our engine to and build their quality testing queries. They want to find places where their code is not optimized. Our engine is capable of doing it, it's just not our business model. But some of our customers have chosen to build the queries around that domain. And then to kind of extend into this concept, there is also the issue that static analysis findings may not always be exploitable because there may be other compensating controls or things that the static engine doesn't have purview into that is protecting the piece of software from being exploited. Do you have any guidance or best practices or recommendations that you tell your customers on how to manage that piece? You know, how do you actually manage the true risk of things you're finding in static analysis and doing the analysis to determine whether something's truly exploitable or not? There are two approaches into that. One approach is the worst case scenario. You have a vulnerability in your code. Currently, it's not exploitable, but we all know that it will become exploitable at some time in the future, so you need to get that fixed. We have released an open source product called Kix, Keep Infrastructure as Code Secure. You can find it on GitHub. Uh, which analyzes your infrastructure code and tells you whether everything is properly configured or not. In our next release of our system, Kix will be integrated with SAS and can tell you, well, your API, for example, is, is you have a SQL injection which begins with that API, but your API gateway has a compensating measure and that's why it's currently not exploitable. So that's way, in that way, we combine our understanding of your infrastructure as code together with your, our understanding of your applicative code, and then we're able to prioritize the, the results accordingly. Got it. And you're very welcome to test drive the kicks and to contribute queries to that. Awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely have to look into that. Um, I wasn't familiar with it before, so you gave me some homework to do. Well, Maddie, do you want to shift gears? We always like to end our episodes by getting to learn more about our guests more on the personal level and not just all about work and all about cybersecurity. So from our conversations before, I understand you're an avid biker and uh, would love to learn more about why you love biking so much and what, what about it is so appealing to you. And more importantly, would love to also learn more about any favorite places you have where you like to go biking and enjoy biking frequently. I like that question. Once a year uh, in August, we go on a family vacation to the desert stargazing and watching the Perseid showers. And from time to time, I ride my uh, trail bikes there in, in the desert and the quietness and tranquility of the desert really recharges my energy and it's very different from my hectic day to day. So I really, really like the quietness of the desert and, and riding there. That's fantastic. I'm assuming you recommend people to go visit and, and ride there as well. Uh, is that one of your favorite favorite locations? Oh, yeah. It's 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 amazing place. Awesome. The desert here in Israel. Awesome. Well, Maddie, I've never visited, but I would love to visit and check out all the unique places in Israel. That's one of the countries that's on my list to go visit. So definitely going to add that to my list. Maddie, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Uh, got to learn a lot from you, especially about the static analysis journey and the journey of check marks and, and where you guys have come. This is always fascinating to me. Look forward to meeting you in person someday. Thank you so much for your time. It was our pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you so much. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.